Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alexandra Ortolia-Baird, and today I'm talking to Blake Scott Ball about his new book, Charlie Brown's America, The Popular Politics of Peanuts, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Blake, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And let me start really by saying how much I enjoyed reading Charlie Brown's America. And it's not just because I also grew up um, as an avid reader of Peanuts, but um, also just because this is a book which really so deftly weaves together um, so many areas of cultural and political histories in a very, very engaging and profound way. Um, So it's been an absolute pleasure to read, and I'm very excited to talk about it with you today. Um, And so to begin, I just wanted to ask you to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how the book Charlie Brown's America really came to be. Okay, well, um, so I am a history professor uh, in uh, Alabama in the United States. Um, I'm at a small liberal liberal arts college called Huntington College um, uh, in the capital city of, of Alabama. Um, I grew up in Alabama, um, homegrown uh, on um, uh, on the, the Tennessee River. And um, I uh, did my education in Alabama, um, which is uh, down in the American South. And um, and when people ask me about the uh, origins of, of Charlie Brown's America, that I, I end up telling uh, a few different stories and sometimes I sometimes I worry if somebody hears me tell it and diff- hears me tell, uh, in different settings, they, they might think I'm just making it up because I, I tell a few different versions. But um, but uh, one of the reasons that um, that I chose to write about Charlie Brown was because as a kid reading uh, comic strips uh, in the in the newspaper, um, Charlie Brown was simultaneously one of my favorites and one of the most confusing comic strips to a kid um, because uh, at times it would be super funny. And then at other times I would get to the last panel and it would uh, be there wouldn't be a punchline or I wouldn't understand the punchline or it would actually be sad instead of being funny or, or like really reflective. And, and so my memories of reading peanuts as a kid um, are just as often me trying to get an adult in my family to try to, to explain to me what's going on in Charlie Brown and why that's in the funny pages. Um, and, and many times it, it led to a lot of, uh, um, uh, unsatisfactory conversations because I just, I just didn't get it. So, uh, so my curiosity about Charlie Brown goes way back, uh, to being a kid. Um, another reason that I wrote, uh, about Charlie Brown, uh, in particular is because I was looking, um, as a graduate student, I was looking for something that was, um, I was looking for something that was so universal that it seemed that we had had almost uh, taken for granted that it that it just it was it it was it was like vanilla ice cream you know it's it's just like if you're gonna have any ice cream you got you got vanilla and you know if you like ice cream you you know whatever but um, uh, Charlie Brown was. Um, everywhere, but seemed to be this, uh, in, in Snoopy especially, but seemed to be kind of, uh, just innocuous, um, uh, kind of inoffensive and just, you know, feel good. It's about love and friendship and, and, you know, childhood anxieties and things like this. And, um, and, uh, I, I wanted to understand how something that um, seemed seemed so innocuous uh, could be such a cultural touchstone for uh, decades of, of American life in a time 
in in American history between the 1950s and and 2000 that uh, that was anything but uneventful. Um, and so uh, I I wanted to understand how uh, how Charlie Brown had so captured uh, American attention during those decades and. Um, and then understand what in this kind of unassuming um, comic strip, uh, what, what it said about Americans during this period, um, the things that they really um, took for granted, but, but really revealed uh, kind of some of their closest, uh, most closely held values. Uh, And so so I um, went uh, as a as a grad student, went uh, kind of um, blissfully ignorant into the archives going, yeah, I'll write a history of America through uh, the funny pages. And uh, 10 years later, here I am uh, finally coming out of <laughs> coming out of all the endeavor. It's almost like there were quite a lot of funny pages to get through. <laughs> <laughs> but you certainly start on that that point, don't you? In your in your introduction, and that's um, something I really wanted to pick up on because I just I found this such a wonderful phrase that you you bring up and you bring up in your introduction this idea of the kind of wishy washiness of peanuts. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could explain to listeners quite how the politics of peanuts was in, has been interpreted and, and why, in fact, this wishy washy ideology, as you call it, was actually a really important facet of both the comic strip, but also of Cold War America, more generally speaking. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, so so wishy-washy is a label that um, that Charlie Brown gets a lot in the comic strip, especially from the more aggressive personalities in the strip, like Lucy. Um, and um, so wishy-washy uh, for Charlie Brown in the strip kind of meant like he just... Um, he he can't really make up his mind he can he can see the he can see the the benefits or the reasonings kind of both sides of an argument and and he really doesn't want to um it 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 doesn't matter enough to him to start a fight about it and uh and so um, he's kind of indecisive in the middle and someone like Lucy sees that as kind of a, a prime character flaw of, of Charlie Brown, that he's, that he's so indecisive. Um, and, um, interestingly, Charles Schultz himself, when asked, uh, in interviews about his politics at times would say, uh, that his politics were quite wishy-washy, um, and uh, but personally, I, I kind of identified with that coming coming of age in um, in the kind of George W. Bush years, where there was there was a lot of uh, uh, fighting and arguing about uh, our our uh, America's place in the world, and and then and then the Obama years, and then especially the the uh, the last four years of of Donald Trump. Um, the all, all of all of the arguments and and um, and the back and forth, um, and I tend to be the kind of person that I have to I take new information. I kind of have to I kind of have to sit on it for a little while and and mull over it and chew on it a bit before uh, you know. I just don't have that Lucy personality of knowing exactly what I think about something sometimes even before someone <laughs> says it. Um, and, uh, I just need a lot more time to process. And, and what I found in my research, um, looking at, at readers responses and, and, and looking at American Cold War culture, uh, broadly, I, I think what, um, uh, what you find is, is a, a nation that was, um, uh, less polarized, um, than it uh, it liked to think itself uh, to be at, at times um, that that the space was uh, not that they didn't have arguments um, but that the space between uh, the left and right side of the arguments oftentimes was was much closer than 
than uh, that either side assumed, and um, that there was a large group in the middle who kind of saw value on 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 both sides, both uh, what more conservative voices had to offer at times and what more liberal voices had to offer. Um, and I and I think we still see it in in uh, the American voting populace that there's um, that there's a real kind of I'm, the fact that, the fact that the same electorate that you know that put uh, Donald Trump and those policies into office can turn around uh, four years later and 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 put in um, the Biden administration and the very uh, kind of uh, expansive. Um, uh, policies of of this new administration, and and they'd be very popular with the with the uh, in in polling of uh, American voters um, is is pretty astounding. I think um, in a time where we f- we feel um, more than ever that that uh, that people of different political viewpoints just almost live on different planets. Um, from one another. And, um, and so I think one of the, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that this wishy-washiness or this, this kind of, uh, chameleon-like, uh, ability to, ability to shift and navigate, um, uh, through, uh, the, the very, uh, fraught, uh, issues of, of Cold War America this this ability and an ability to um, to be read in multiple ways by different audiences um, gave made Charles Schultz peanuts into a sort of um, a pop cultural space where Americans could turn and look and see their values and ideas reflected. Um, and so, uh, and in in a similar way that I think the reason Charlie Brown is the friend that holds all of the all of the complicated and and uh, frenetic personalities of the Peanuts gang, he's the one that holds it all together, in part because he is the one that um, you know a, a Lucy and a Peppermint Patty um, their personalities kind of rub against each other, but Charlie Brown is the one who is wishy-washy enough to be a receptor for uh for all of these complicated personalities and and i see um peanuts kind of serving that role in the political culture of america during the cold war uh that americans could um could bounce their ideas and their interpretations and their viewpoints off of this um, cultural space that Charles Schultz was creating every morning in the newspaper. It's very interesting to think of wishy-washiness as being this kind of social glue that ties us all together, <laughs> <laughs> especially with right. regards to you know the US right now, where I think wishy-washy right. is probably not the word that a lot of people would right. use regarding politics. But it's a very interesting um, uh, kind of a perspective that you know I certainly, um, I, I mean, well, a lot in this book I found very confronting, not least because as a, as a child reading Peanuts, you know, a lot of this doesn't come to you, but. Um, but I want to pick up a little bit um, uh, kind of on this approach that you take, because that's really how you you explore this idea of wishy-washiness. And you describe the book um, as a biography of Peanuts' cultural life, which I just think is, is a fantastic um, uh, way of phrasing this, actually, as a kind of methodological approach. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by this as a kind of biography of a, of a cultural life and why you think it's such an effective way of examining the, not only the history, obviously, of a cartoon story, but also a cultural phenomenon like peanuts, like Charlie Brown, like Snoopy, and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I so um, the the thing that I the thing that I didn't want to do because because it had been done. And I, there's a there's a there's a great biography of Charles Schultz, um, really interesting one done by uh, David Michaelis called called um, uh, Schultz and Peanuts. Um, and what I, what I didn't want to do was just tell about the life of another famous white man in America. Um, because I felt like while that was, while that was part of this story, that was really just a piece. Um, 
the way I the way I viewed peanuts was that it had almost become um, it. It is in many ways the 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 ideas, the creation is 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 uniquely tied to Schultz's individual personality, even even in a way that's different from like um, uh, like Walt Disney's productions and, and things like this, because. Um, on the comic strip, Charles Schultz was was adamant for uh, for the entire fifty years of his career that that uh, no one else drew his his strips, uh, no one else uh, wrote his strips, um, and in fact, he even says in a number of interviews, when people suggest to me ideas for the strip, I intentionally don't use those ideas because I want it. He said he's. He was uh, he loved sports um, and uh, he enjoyed playing golf. And he said, you know, having somebody else feed you the ideas for a strip is like um, letting someone else tee up and and drive the golf ball for you. Like, what's what's the fun in it? Um, So. um, So I um, Schultz point being that Schultz is is um, very integral to the creation of these ideas. But I saw them as sort of taking on a life of their own as they went out into the culture, whether that was through the newspaper or through the animated television and film uh, productions or through uh, commercial licensing and advertising or through, um, as I talk about in many places in the book, places where um, fans took these characters and sort of repurposed them to uh, to address various issues they were concerned about. Um, and so, so I wanted to tell this story not uh, the biog- like a standard biography of a person, but instead a biography of these these icons like how how they went from being just an idea of one man to being living in the in the the daily space of i mean i mean now you know 20 years after after schultz has has passed away still uh living uh large in in american life and um uh tv and the internet and and uh, all the, all these sorts of things, and so uh, I, I just love that idea. And an and a early um, kind of outline of this book actually had the book div- or divided out to where each chapter would be a different character, and that I would trace different elements of of American cultural life through. One through Charlie Brown, one through Franklin, one through Linus, one through Lucy, um, and you can kind of see. I think you can kind of see elements uh, of the way the stories play out through the chapters in the book. But I, I just, I just never quite um, could could get that to work the way I the way I hoped it would. But yeah, I just always had this grand vision of like the at the head of each chapter would be the character that kind of symbolized that um that theme of the that chapter certainly but it's very interesting actually you know having read it and we're going to come i think especially to one character in particular um i hope you know later in the interview that um that actually that structure probably would have really realigned the the kind of the character balances um mm. because actually what you really see in the book is that one character seems to come through very very strongly and it's not perhaps <laughs> the character that one would expect having been having read um peanuts but um before we kind of um, move into kind of the, the real depth of, of the book, I was wondering if you could maybe just um, tell listeners a little bit about actually Charles Schultz himself. So I know, you know, you stay, you have one chapter on him, but, you know, you do stay away from biography. But, you know, to, to what extent did his life and attitudes really play into the, the development of Charlie Brown and the gang? And, you know, how must we kind of think about disentangling them, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a, that's a great question. Um uh, Charles Schultz got asked in interviews throughout his life um, uh, which which character he identified with, and and you know obviously most most often the assumption was Charlie Brown must be a sort of stand-in for Charles Schultz that that the the two are are one and the same, 
And Schultz had a really interesting response to those questions. He would often say, actually, um, what you see in each character is a is a piece of my personality. Um, he says there there are some there are some times in my life that I'm very much a Charlie Brown, but there's other times that I'm a Lucy or I'm uh, a Linus, a kind of thoughtful, philosophical reflector. Other times I'm a I'm a kind of a freewheeling, uh, head in the cloud, Snoopy, uh, type character. And, um, so, um, there it's, it's really impossible to separate the, the origins of, of, uh, these characters and these stories from, uh, Charles Schultz himself. He grows up, um, in St. Paul, Minnesota and is, um, uh, born in, uh, the early 1920s, uh, lives through the depression. Uh, his parents are, um, uh, are German immigrants and, um, he, let's see, his father is a barber, um, which comes up in the comic strip from time to time. Charlie Brown's dad is, is referred to as a barber, uh, on a number of occasions. And sometimes you see Charlie Brown go to, uh, go to the barber shop um, and and wait for wait for a haircut. I'm not exactly sure what hair he's getting cut because he's kind of just got that one curly cube. But um, he um, grows up um, as an only child in St. Paul. Um, he loves reading comic strips, and his dad is as part of the barber shop that he owned. His dad would keep. Um, uh, newspapers for the uh, for the customers, and so um, and at the end of the workday, they would bring home the newspapers, and um, and Schultz would save uh, the funny pages. Uh, he takes to um, writing, or or rather uh, drawing a lot of these characters. Some of his favorite characters were um, characters like Popeye. And uh, and Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, which were which were all um, uh, newspaper comic strips at the time. Um, so he he really took to the more kind of cartoonish uh, characters more so than the than the more realistic, uh, dramatic kind of um, uh, you know Dick Tracy or or uh, Terry and the Pirates or uh, something like this. And um, and so. Um, he take, takes to drawing. He he finishes school. Apparently, is kind of a, a lackluster uh, student in school. Um, and he uh, his mother finds an ad in the newspaper for a correspondence course for art, and they the family signs him up for it. And so he starts taking these classes, and he mails in his early assignments because. Um, because as a, um, living in St. Paul, the correspondence course was actually in Minneapolis. And so it was, it was just, you know, a, a few miles away. He could, um, he had the option to go in person, but he says early on, he was super nervous. He was afraid that, you know, that, uh, that he wouldn't be up to snuff and would embarrass himself. And, uh, but as he got, um, more feedback through the correspondence system, he got more interested and, and, um, gained some confidence. So he starts going in and doing the classes in person. He very soon, uh, begins to realize that, that his line and, and his, um, his pencil and pen skills, uh, in, in particularly his lettering skills, um, he does, uh, if you look at the comic strip, he does all of the lettering for, um, for all of the bubbles for 50 years. Um, he, he's, he's really good at it and he better than he realized, um, kind of stands out in the class after finishing the core, uh, finishing the course, he's actually offered a job, uh, at the school there to become an instructor and, um, starts off sort of, uh, as a grading assistant for, uh, the incoming correspondence, um, uh, uh, programs. And, um, it's really kind of a, this is, um, let's see, uh, this would have been in the, uh, very early forties and, uh, late, yeah, very early forties. Um, and so it's kind of a booming moment for, 
um, for art and um, and comics, um, Superman and and the superhero comics had just taken off in in the previous couple of years and. Um, magazines and newspapers and kind of all print mediums hire artists for for all kinds of uh ads and and things like this and so it's really kind of a booming time in the industry and so schultz is uh working on this and then the whole thing gets interrupted by a uh, draft notice um in 1942 he, he uh, gets a notice that he's going to be drafted and he's really kind of in shock because he's never once in his life imagined himself as the kind of kid that would um, go into um, go into the military, much less go into war. And um, to add to the kind of um, dislocation and and. Um, intimidation of the whole thing um his mother who had been increasingly ill in uh in recent months uh it turns out she was suffering from cancer that um that she his parents had decided um to kind of uh keep that information uh to themselves and um his mother passes away right as he's about to leave um for uh, for training down in, in Kentucky. And so, um, he ends up, he's away, uh, for uh, three years in the military, um, serves in Europe, uh, comes home. Um, he has, uh, he's gained some, uh, some more kind of personal confidence because he's, he's worked his way up to being a, um, a commander of his, of his unit. And is uh, has kind of gained some some respect um, from others, but also just some respect for himself. Uh, He's able to do things he didn't realize he could do. And so he comes home and he launches right back into uh, into art and um, he goes to work at the at the art school uh, again kind of expanding his role there, but also he begins trying to privately uh, submit um, artwork to anyone and everyone uh, that's either soliciting or not um, uh, art submissions. He wants to get, uh, he has a dream of, of being a comic strip writer. And so he's really aggressive with this. He's sending it everywhere. Um, He says that his, uh, his, approach was to always keep something out in the mail. And he said it was kind of difficult at times because more often he's, you know, for, for everyone he's sending out, he's got three that are being mailed back with, with a rejection. And so, um, um, through all of this, he actually ends up getting a panel, uh, actually by the end of the relationship, about 12 panels picked up by the Saturday evening post. Uh, they run in the in the back section of uh, of the uh, of the magazine, and these are um, uh, little single panel um, quirky jokes about um, little kids. They're kind of nameless little kids. They're um, you know one for instance is uh, is a is a child sitting. Uh, the very first one is a child sitting on a chaise lounge. Um, and instead, uh, to read a magazine and instead of sitting with his back against the, the back of the chair, he's sitting all the way down at the foot so that his feet can just reach the ottoman at the, at the end. Um, and, and that's the whole joke. There's no, you know, it's just, it's just this child trying to play it being an adult. And, um, so Schultz starts developing these ideas. He turns it into a local uh, comic strip in St. Paul for his local paper. He does that for two years. Um, and then he finally gets brought on. Um, it gets invited to New York City, uh, United Feature Syndicate. They look over his work. Um, they like it. They want to see it turned. They want to see the single panels turned into a four panel strip. Um, he reworks some of it to that effect and they sign him on to a deal. And so in October, uh, October 2nd, 1950, um, Charles Schultz, uh, launches the peanuts comic strip, 
a, a name that he didn't choose. It got chosen kind of by office poll. Um, and, and he, uh, he kind of despised it for years <laughs> afterwards. Um, he wanted to call it something maybe like good old Charlie Brown or something like that. Um, but, uh, the strip launches in seven national newspapers and it, it starts, uh, growing slowly at first, but within about two years, it's getting more attention. Um, it really takes off in 1956 when Schultz, um, captures the attention of the National uh, Association for uh, for Cartoonists, the National Cartoonist Society, and wins their top prize for Cartoonist of the Year. And uh, from there, uh, it he starts kind of blossoming out into uh, advertising. He gets picked up by uh, the Kodak Company, um, uh, Kodak Eastman uh, photography and also uh, in 1959 he gets picked up by um, the Ford Motor Company who was launching the first line of economy sized Ford cars uh, it was it was a very different time kind of the winding down of the big you know dual fin uh, monstrous Cadillac cars of, of the 1950s. And so Ford is looking for a creative way to launch these new economy sized family cars. And they think what better way than these little uh, kid characters with kind of, you know, um, uh, sarcastic uh, attitudes. And, uh, and that really starts to kind of change the game for Schultz. He moves uh, about that time from Minnesota out to Northern California, about an hour north of San Francisco, where he lives uh, the rest of, of his career and um, and then spends the next, um, you know, from from the 50s on, spends the next uh, four decades um, writing this uh, comic strip that uh, that catches fire all across the country. And so much of that kind of catching fire, as you say, seems to be the responsiveness of Peanuts to kind of the political culture of the time, if I'm right. So, I mean, mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in the second chapter, you move to kind of talk about the Cold War origins of Peanuts. And um, I thought it was really it was really fascinating how you kind of draw a comparison here between how Schultz is looking at um, kind of Cold War politics and, you know, the outlook of other cartoonists in the 1950s. And you you kind of suggest that they had this kind of greater tendency towards machismo or it, this escapist simplicity, um, whereas, you know, Peanuts had, as you said, this, this wishy-washy ideology, which was perhaps <laughs> what was so appealing about it um, at the time. But something I really wanted to pick up on um, uh, in this second chapter um, was was you you talk a lot about one of the these fantastic devices um, that that Schultz weaves throughout the strip throughout the decades and I'm sure anyone who's familiar with Peanuts um, will know it well and that's Linus's security blanket um, <laughs> and I was wondering if you could tell us a little about the context of this motif which I have to admit I was completely unaware of and really took me by surprise um, yeah. and perhaps tell us a bit about why it was so provocative to to readers in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, well, so um, so I, I'm I'm with you. I, I was quite surprised as I as I researched uh, the history of the concept uh, again and again when I when I would read um, uh, Schultz in interviews talk about, um, especially if he was asked about what 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 parts of what innovations of peanuts are you most proud of. One of the things that he comes back to over and over again is. Linus's security blanket, and that 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 uh, uh, term security blanket had been added to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, and he was so proud um, as someone who who really um, uh, loved literature, which you see come up again and again in the in the comic strip, loved the written word. Um, that he could have the impact of adding a word to the English language, adding a, a new concept uh, or, or naming a concept, uh, as it were. Um, but as I as I dug into the history, I, I was like, could that really be true? Is it like no one had called, you know, no one had referred to this as a security blanket. Um, but uh, what I found was that the, the term security blanket actually was used before peanuts, but it was not used in the context of, of, um, of uh, children. 
it was actually used in a military context. Um, there are a whole series of reports um, during the um, Second World War and thereafter about um, about movements and strategies and formations where essentially you are um, you are not going uh, a military operation is not going on the offensive, but it's it's setting up a defensive a defensive perimeter. Uh, that they hope they don't have to use. They hope that, you know, that it doesn't have to be initiated, but it's, it's there as a security blanket or a blanket of security. And, um, and so the, the common usage of that term in the 1940s is actually in the military and increasingly in the cold war, uh, kind of strategic sense, um, almost in the same terms of, of, uh, thinking about, um, cold war, uh, containment and and I couldn't I couldn't help but uh, uh, but be um, my mind be drawn to the the famous um, uh, cultural history done by um, um, Elaine Tyler May um, Homeward Bound about kind of the the social and cultural containment of of the home front uh, during. Um, during the Cold War, that that sort of mirrored the the strategy and and militarism of of the actual global conflict, and um, and so I, I was really struck by this to to find that that Schultz has actually taken something that was that was commonly a military term, and he has made it something about uh, about the childhood, and in the letters the letters that he receives in the 1950s from um, so many of them from young parents that are writing and saying, oh my gosh, we, we love it uh, when Linus has a security blanket because our kid carries around a blanket just like that. And we've started calling it a security blanket because, you know, because of, of Linus or uh, the psychologist that begin that begin writing to him child psychologists um in including um uh dr spock um very very famous uh uh child um uh, uh child doc uh, uh pediatrician uh during during the during the period and um they they start writing and saying oh my gosh you you have taken you've taken this concept of of kind of um uh, a, a child's sort of uh, spatial and emotional um, uh, uh, dislocation and discomfort, and you have um, in their need for things to kind of to kind of uh, secure them, ground them, um, and you've given it such a this this deep psychological con uh, 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 deep psychological. Uh, uh, phenomenon you've given it such a um uh, such a clear and uh, concise kind of reference point right tying it up in this security blanket and so in in tons of uh psychology texts uh in textbooks and in uh papers at conferences and things like this there these uh um leading thinkers on childhood development are drawing in these comic strips uh of Linus and the security blanket to demonstrate these these um psychological concepts that they're that they're studying to their audience and um and it's 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 really interesting because in a lot of ways i, I you can see the two um, both the kind of um, military uh, definition of, of this, and then the the Schultzian um, uh, child security blanket definition, really kind of uh, merging in a lot of ways, where um, you see various expressions, and and especially later on in editorial cartoons and things like this, where Linus's security blanket that is is on its face is about childhood insecurities actually comes to connect with the very real insecurities that a lot of adults have and that really gets to uh, kind of what i'm talking about with the cold war origins of of peanuts is that the thing that was so u- unique i think in the 1950s about peanuts 
um, in, in a time that's that's as you as you said very macho, very um, kind of grand adventure and escapist is that Peanuts is extremely grounded. It's extremely down to earth. It's scenarios that Americans saw every single day in their daily life. And it wears its insecurities on its sleeves. It was a space that was just, just um, sometimes shockingly honest about how afraid and uncertain and, um, and lonely that Americans um, could feel in this grand new future they were living in, in, in the American century. Um, and that level of honesty and, and um, authenticity um, seemed to really connect with, uh, with his audience. And if we might stay with Linus for a moment, um, mm-hmm. because Linus is such a oh, such a wonderful character, but also such a central <laughs> one in in the book, I was I was wondering if we might use him to maybe talk about um, the, the the next chapter, which you move on to, which is about mm-hmm. the interactions between Peanuts and the evangelical counterculture that comes up in mm-hmm. the 1960s, and the ways in which Schultz and the comic are navigating these issues of of religion and how this is being received by the public, but also you know how does this become, I suppose. Linus becomes the vehicle in some respects um, for a lot mm. of these kind of religious messaging and and the the navigation of religious issues. Um, so I was wondering if you might kind of expand a little bit about, about that because I think he's such a wonderful character to explore <laughs> that, that meeting point of I guess Cold War um, anxiety and also uh, religious shifts. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. So um, so so again, there's there's a biographical element to this. You know, Schultz had grown up in sort of a nominally Lutheran home, um, but but religion was not really a, a a big or regular part of of his of his childhood. But when he comes home from World War II, his 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 mom's gone. Um, his dad is 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 uh, remarrying. And um, he feels just super alone, at least in the military. He had had guys that he was around every day. Um, And now he's back home. He lives with his dad and his dad's new wife. And and um, and he feels uh, disconnected. So he actually reaches out to the only um, the only spiritual person that he could think of in his life, which was the the. Uh, minister that had had done his mother's funeral reaches out to him and they get him connected with uh, kind of a young adult um, church group in town um, and uh, it turns it turns out it's actually they refer they're referred to at the time as is kind of a um, referred to at the time as a fundamentalist group um, which had different, a bit different connotations at mid-century than that does today. Um, basically, uh, what it is 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 a pretty um, a pretty passionate evangelical group. Uh, they, at one point, Schultz uh, even gets involved uh, with a group and goes and and stands on a street corner in Minneapolis and uh, tries to evangelize people uh, walking down the street. And he talks about afterwards just how uncomfortable and just uh, it just felt like that wasn't the right approach to try and win people over uh, uh, on those ideas. And um, but so he becomes a very um, enthusiastic part of, of this group and kind of finds a, a, an identity and uh, finds a community. And um, that becomes a, a super important part of his life uh, over the next couple of decades. And, and then uh, things kind of change in his life and, and it kind of wanes and religion becomes a much uh, a much more personal and less public thing for him. Um, and he talks about that um, a, a good bit. Uh, but so the, the important thing here is that Linus um, before. At the at the start of Peanuts, Charlie Brown is uh, is about four years old, and um, and there's a very limited set of characters there. And and 
Charlie Brown is really the only one that still that stays kind of prominently around uh, for the whole length of the of the the series. Um, but there's Charlie Brown, there's Violet, uh, there's Patty, and there's different from Peppermint Patty, and there's Shermie. And so two boys, two girls, that's that's the way uh, the strip starts. Um, Lucy is the first new kid born on the street. And uh, but Lucy very quickly develops her personality and becomes kind of the joke becomes that she's the she's the youngest, but she's the boss. And uh, and so she kind of takes her her personality forms pretty quickly over over uh, a series of months. And and so Linus is really the first one where um, where Schultz takes a little more time and explores kind of the uh, growing up experience of, of, of a, a newborn to an infant to a toddler. And, and so uh, Linus is a character that he kind of um, takes his time with in developing. And it's happening at a moment where Charles Schultz is becoming increasingly convinced uh, that he needs to um, if he has this kind of growing national platform to say things to Americans every day that he should probably use it for um, uh, to say some important things, including things that he felt were super important, like his um, religious evangelical ideas. And so Linus begins um, to uh, to quote Bible verses and ask kind of philosophical religious questions and, and study these things. And you see him, he kind of, uh, becomes, uh, the scholar of, of the group, um, expressing that kind of very, uh, studious side of, of Schultz's, uh, personality. And, um, and, Ultimately, uh, Linus becomes, um, whether it be in uh, presentations at, at school where he brings where he brings his handmade copies of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, to show to his class in the original uh, in the original language or um, or like through stories like uh, the Great Pumpkin. Um, and you know, uh, the, the origins of the great pumpkin story is Linus kind of getting, uh, confused between, um, Halloween and Christmas, which holiday happens, which, because he's kind of the young kid. And so he's got a mixed up. And so he, he believes that the great pumpkin is going to come down to the most sincere pumpkin patch and bring gifts and presents to, to all the, the good children who believed in him. And each year it doesn't happen, and he um, he experiences kind of this um, uh, this crisis of faith. But then he finds some way to explain why actually the great pumpkin didn't let me down, um, and next year it, this is going to work. And it becomes this commentary for Schultz on sort of the the dangers of of um blind faith the dangers of of uh sort of erecting systems where regardless of fact uh we can convince ourselves we can explain away all the contrary evidence and we convince ourselves that that uh that we're right and we couldn't possibly be wrong um and uh it, it's 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 really incredible the ways that Schultz is both kind of uh, through Linus and through the strip is both kind of expressing um, the real faith that he believes is really important, but also expressing concern that he has about how these things are being misused or abused. Um, and and so the whole thing kind of comes to a, to a head in that chapter when um, with the production of uh, the first television special, um, Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, through this through this program, uh, there's a lot of anti-consumerism, which was a pretty common uh, a pretty common theme in in uh, holiday specials of the time. Think um, like um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, 
right? And that, that whole anti-consumerist message. Um, but Schultz says uh, to the producers, you know, we've got to, if we're really going to do this right, and we're really going to drive to what is the meaning of, of Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas in particular? Um, he says, we have to talk about the nativity and the birth of Jesus. And they kind of push back against that. And he finally says, look, either either it's in there or or we don't we don't do the thing. And um, so they reluctantly agree to do this. After that production where where uh, there were that premiere where Linus uh, uh, recites um, from Luke chapter two about about the birth of Jesus, um, Schultz and uh, the sponsors of the program, Coca-Cola, get bombarded by letters from across the country of people sitting down, many of them saying that they that they're sitting down that night. They just finished watching the program and they just had to write the letter right now um, to say thank you for putting uh, your this this message into American uh, pop culture. We, we never we never hear about Jesus. No one ever no one ever actually they they talk about the the good virtues and the values and 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 kindness and all these kinds of things and charity but nobody ever directly comes out and makes it explicitly christian um and so from that point schultz kind of becomes this unwitting evangelical hero um and and yet as i noted uh at at the outset um Schultz in later decades in his life really takes this journey where by by the 1990s he's calling himself a Christian humanist uh, or I'm sorry a um, uh, a secular humanist um, which is really when he says that in an interview in the 90s it's really shocking to uh, to a lot of evangelicals and to a lot of fans who liked him because they felt like Schultz was the spoke person spokesperson for their viewpoint, a viewpoint that they felt never really got fully appreciated in in American culture was always they always see themselves as an underdog or an outsider. And um, and so here's Schultz in this very complicated uh, position where um, a thing that he's very proud of and that he did very intentionally has has given some of his um, fans perhaps a wrong idea about exactly where he stands on, on some of these issues. And I, I go further in the book to talk about uh, a number of different um, religious issues where, uh, again, his, his stance and, and the, the viewpoint of, of the creator of the comic strip is um, much more nuanced and different from the way it gets perceived in the public. But as, as I noted uh, from the outset, uh, in a lot of ways, it's not, by the time it's out in the public, it's not really about what Charles Schultz believes anymore. It's become about what readers see in it. Um, this sort of Rorschach test of, of uh, American political culture. And so much of that um, ambiguity, I suppose, comes out um, then later in, in chapter four, which is, I, I suppose, really a turning point um, in the book. And this is where you, you, you start to turn to this big question about the limits of racial integration in Peanuts and highlight how Schultz, although he himself, you know, seemed fairly committed to racial equality, really struggled um, with, you know, how to use this national platform to, to work towards the civil rights movement without doing what you said was a kind of a patronizing attempt to kind of assuage either the African-American community or alienating white middle-class Americans um, and, you know, finding this middle of the road um, uh, approach. And um, to, to kind of draw on this, you, 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 Draw attention, obviously, to the to the introduction of the character of Franklin, um, who's the first African American character to um, integrate a nationally syndicated newspaper comic strip. Um, and you draw attention also to how he came out of a very unlikely series of correspondence between Schultz and a public school teacher called Harriet Glickman. And I was wondering if you could tell us maybe a little bit about this. Uh, I guess it's, it's, it sounds fairly anecdotal, I suppose, to listeners, but it's a really vital um, kind of element of the story. And, and also, I think, is, is 
crucial um, to kind of highlight also your methodology is as a historian, you know, you draw a lot on correspondence and it's, it's, it's absolutely central to the thesis that you've um, presented here. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Harriet. Right. Okay. So uh, Harriet Glickman uh, was, was um, a pretty incredible lady. She's a, she's a mother of three living in Southern California. Um, She had been a public school teacher. She had at the time that she's writing in 1968, she had, um, she had actually uh, stopped working, was a stay-at-home mom, but she was also still volunteering with a number of different uh, community uh, activism groups, especially in um, equal housing opportunity uh, in California. And so uh, she has been, um, for a little while, by, by the spring of 1968, she's been trying to write to different um, different cartoonists to different television stations to radio, uh, trying to um, get across uh, that that there is a there is a demand for a more diverse, um, or she believes there's a demand for a more diverse um, uh, uh, scene in in uh, American uh, media, and. Um, because, uh, as as I talk about in this chapter, a, a really um, kind of unanticipated thing had happened with the civil rights movement um, starting in the mid-1950s is that in a lot of ways, um, media producers had actually started to shy. They, they had come to a place where they understood that um, older depictions of um, black characters had been uh, insensitive and oftentimes uh, deeply and aggressively offensive. And so they had eliminated those characters, but they were extremely reluctant and shy to introduce any types of new characters, new black characters to replace those for fear that, um, that they might, it might, um, uh, go badly uh, that there could be backlash or or um, uh, negative coverage of it, and so um, the end result of this is that in in many spaces in American culture by the mid nineteen sixties, like black characters had disappeared as any sort of meaningful playing any any uh, real meaningful role in. Uh, in American culture, of course, there were exceptions um, in television and film, but uh, but oftentimes those exceptions simply proved the rule uh, that, um, by and large, if you were watching a program like Lassie, uh, a, a big uh, family program of the mid '60s, um, Lassie lived in a world where apparently there were no black people whatsoever, not even as as background extras, um, and so. Um, so Harriet Glickman is seeing this problem. She has uh, friends that um, uh, Af- uh, mixed race friends that uh, are uh, kind of, that she's kind of talking about these things with, and she's reaching out to different folks. She's been turned turned down or ignored on a number of different occasions, and she decides, following the assassination of Martin Luther King, she decides to reach out to Charles Schultz. Um, you know what? What bigger? What bigger play? There, there really was no uh, more widely um, distributed comic strip in America at the time. So, so she's going right to the top, um, and she writes and says, "Look, you've 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 got to do this." And Schultz kind of writes this demurring letter back and says, "Hey, I, I, I get it. I'm 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 with you personally, but I'm very concerned about how this could be." Um, patronizing and, um, you know, maybe, maybe me as a Midwestern white man uh, might not be the right person to uh, write a black character. And, um, you know, if, if it had been maybe 99 other people uh, writing these letters, they would have sort of taken the polite uh, 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 refusal from the artist and said, well, um, you know, I gave it a shot and, and move on. But uh, Glickman was not that sort. Uh, she continues to write Schultz and she formulates a plan to reach out to uh, some some black families in her community 
and ask if they would write, help her write letters um, to Schultz from their perspective about what it would mean to them and their families if uh, if um, if they saw a, a a genuine black character in uh, Peanuts. And so uh, they they send all these letters. So in the in in the meantime, um, uh, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated um, that summer, and um, that you know, of course, Bobby Kennedy had had come to be um, sort of uh, a voice for the political uh, future of, of civil rights or a potential voice for the political future of civil rights in, in the democratic party and in national, uh, politics of the time. And so his death, uh, really kind of, uh, on top of the death of, of Martin Luther King back in April, really just sort of sent this message, uh, to a, a lot of Americans. I think that, um, that now was a pivotal moment uh, to make clear where we stand, what our values are, and that we actually are moving towards integration and not backwards um, in uh, in a sort of retrograde um, uh, move back to um, discrimination. And so Charles Schultz is is moved by this, takes this idea, and decides, you know what, I, I may not be the the perfect person to voice a black character. But I do have a platform that that uh, that impacts uh, millions of Americans. And so he decides to introduce uh, the character um, in uh, August uh, or uh, July of uh, 1968. And it's uh, it's a uh, a really interesting introduction. He actually uh, Charlie Brown uh, meets Franklin at the beach Um the two boys are both in their swimsuits in their in their swim trunks, so there is no questioning uh, the difference between the two characters. It's it's incredibly stark. They have a week long conversation with one another and become very good friends. And um, and uh, Franklin slowly becomes a uh, a more regular character in in the strip, and it's commented upon all across. Um, the American media at the time, um, it, it's it's uh, widely hailed um, and and pretty much universally accepted. Um, it Franklin never really gets pushback until Franklin moves to the neighborhood and starts going to school uh, with the other white children. At which point, um, there is uh, some pretty the um, fairly considerable pushback from Southern newspaper editors who. Um, who vowed uh, not to run the strips where um, where Franklin would appear uh, with white children in the classroom um, because uh, they said it was a it was an insult to the the difficulties of of uh, school integration still going on there in the South and um, so uh, but ultimately I think um, Schultz really does struggle um, in developing Franklin into the the kind of meaningful character maybe that he had hoped or maybe that that Harriet Glickman and others uh, had hoped uh, that he might be um, in part because um, he wants to make Franklin into Franklin becomes sort of the model child the model student he's he's never really disrespectful he never really gets in trouble he always makes the best grades in school uh, all of these sorts of things and you can understand why Schultz was doing this trying to present a very positive image um, but it also oftentimes came at the expense of any kind of uh, personality some uh some critics uh, would would claim uh for that character and you know the peanuts characters are aren't about anything if not their personality uh foibles and um and so franklin became um sort of a a it seems a difficult character for Schultz to always know how to use. And because of that, Franklin, um, as, as the strip moved forward, Franklin oftentimes took a backseat to, uh, to other more, um, colorful, uh, personalities for lack of a better term. 
And so you then move um, from this to kind of look, again, still kind of with this chronological focus, and you look through uh, Snoopy becoming this hero um, uh, during the Vietnam War period. You move then to look at the environmental ethos of Peanuts and this, this tension between American consumerism and also this narrative of personal responsibility that comes up, um, especially in response to the, the save energy and the energy crisis. Um, and then finally, you end up in a, in a wonderful chapter, which unfortunately we don't have time today to talk about, but which is looking at gender roles and abortion and sex education, just to tantalize listeners. Um, you know, you can read all about the 1986 contribution that Schultz made to Time magazine um, in a, an article on sex education um, in schools, um, in which Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy and Snoopy all um, kind of featured on the front cover. And then finally, um, the, the, you kind of conclude your book by looking at the demise of Peanuts and um, perhaps how that's really reflective of this changing American political culture. Um, we've, we're running out of time in, our, in this wonderful interview, but I wondered before we let, we, uh, we let you go whether I could really lower the tone and ask you maybe to tell us a little bit about whether you have a favorite Peanuts character and perhaps why and what that means to you maybe as a historian. <laughs> uh sure that that's uh you know that's a surprisingly tough question um there there's there's so much i love about uh each one of them but i think if i were being um most honest yeah i would have to say that it's that it's linus um and and i i hadn't even noticed until until this interview uh you point out uh, how big of a role linus plays in the book and and so maybe that's maybe that's a bit of uh autobiography uh going on in 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 this book for me but um linus uh, i i i really identify with linus's um always just kind of um as as you can tell from uh, from the, the existence of this book, I was always the kind of kid that liked to take things that look very simple and kind of get run over uh, very quickly, and kids moved on to the other things and start start asking all these questions like what well, what but what does that mean and why and you know and and so I'm I'm digging into things that everybody else left hours ago and and has moved on and. Um, so I, I always identified with kind of this scholarly uh, curiosity, philosophical nature of Linus. Um, but uh, but I have to admit, I have a uh, I picked up at some point um, along the way during the research on this book, I picked up a a refrigerator magnet uh, that, uh, that I still have on my refrigerator that, uh, it, and it's a Linus and it's a quote from Linus in the strip, uh, where he says, um, where he says, there's no greater burden. Um, there's, uh, there, oh, I'm sorry, there's no heavier burden than a great potential. And, um, <laughs> and when I saw that magnet, it, it so articulated the, the excitement I had for this project, but also the fear I had that I was going to take something that people like, uh, like Charlie Brown and Snoopy and just, and just absolutely ruin it for everyone and make it not fun. <laughs> so, um, so Linus was my constant reminder to, you know, to, to keep, keep pursuing the potential and, and, uh, and maybe in the hopes that, uh, that I wouldn't crumble under, under the burden of, of, uh, such, just such wonderful, um, uh, cultural content. Well, I can guarantee you haven't taken any of the fun out of it, if anything. Um, you, you've added a whole new level of contention um, to, to Charlie Brown. Um, Blake, thank you so much for, for spending time with us um, today. The book is Charlie Brown's America, The Popular Politics of Peanuts, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Blake, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful.